This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour a conversation with authors exploring leadership development in the government. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Leadership plays a critical role in successfully executing the mission of government. Successful leaders envision, shape, and safeguard the future, creating clarity amidst uncertainty. This objective is increasingly difficult in an era where rapid, unforeseen change seems constant. Federal agencies face serious public management challenges that go to the core of effective governance and leadership, requiring innovation, collaboration, flexibility, and an understanding of the capacity needed to tackle complex, non-routine challenges. Given these challenges, leadership development programs can lay a foundation for skills that current and future executives can leverage to anticipate and respond to future opportunities and risks. The IBM Center Report, Preparing the Next Generation of Federal Leaders, Agency-Based Leadership Development Programs, by Gordon Apner, Jenny Knowles-Morrison, James L. Perry, and Bill Valdez, focuses on how best to build leadership development programs that can shape and inform future government leaders. Bill Valdez and Jim Perry, co-authors of the report, join me today to discuss key insights and recommendations from their IBM Center Report. Bill, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Jim, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael. So, Bill, um, what are agency-based leadership development programs? And perhaps you could outline some key characteristics of these programs. Yeah, what we decided to do was to take a look at uh, programs that are embedded in federal agencies like the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense. And what distinguishes them is that these are centrally managed leadership development programs that have had been in existence for a number of years. Uh, they have a proven track record and that they are producing leaders that the federal government needs. The major characteristic is that they have steady funding, uh, they have steady control, and they follow a, a, usually a model of how they want to produce the leaders. The reason we decided to do that was because every federal agency in the federal government has some form of leadership development for their, uh, for their employees. But what we were concerned about was how can you actually develop an agency-wide program that is effective and what are the characteristics of that? That's great. So, Jim, um, how are these programs essential tools for the federal government that they can use to nurture and develop leaders uh, at every step of their uh, civil servant uh, career? 
Well, I mean, it goes uh, takes us back to one of the, sort of the fundamental questions we cover in sort of leadership courses or classes, and that is: is leadership something we need in the federal service? Something that can be developed and for which people can be trained or educated, or is it something that uh, you know people are born with? And of course, I think many years ago we decided that it's not an innate quality, but it's something for which we can develop uh, individuals. So. You know, leadership involves a learned set of knowledge, skills, behaviors, and I also like to think of the concept of awareness, and and that's certainly a factor when you, when you begin to talk to people across the federal government because some people are aware they're leaders or want to be leaders and embrace that idea, that function within organizations. Other people. Uh, dismiss it or perhaps run from it. But we uh, quite obviously have people performing a variety of functions uh, in their roles across the government uh, that may be uh, labeled or appropriately called leadership. And so we want to sort of uh, bring those people uh, into the, that awareness about leadership. Uh, now, having said that, uh, then the question is, you know, what sorts of systematic development can we provide for leaders? Uh, and uh, clearly, we, we, I think we know that there's a difference between uh, organizations and federal agencies that are well-led uh, and their performance and, and agencies that are uh, not well-led and their performance. So clearly, what we're trying to do is capture uh, higher levels of individual performance and, in turn, higher levels of organizational performance. So that's really what the I think the leadership preparation is all about. One of the things I'd like to think about um, in, uh, in terms of the essential need for leadership is really the complexity of federal service and what the federal government does. And I, I like to think about it in terms of what I might call three R's, resources, relationships, and rules or norms. And, and clearly what we want to do is get everybody on the same page so that uh, they can acquire and provide the resources necessary to get their missions accomplished. Uh, they can develop the relationships and the relationships can be vast for many federal agencies both internally as well as externally. Uh, and uh, those re relationships need to be developed and, and nurtured. Uh, and then we people need to be aware of the rules and norms uh, affecting uh, their roles in the in federal agencies. So, uh, in terms of the essential characteristics of of leadership, uh, you know, I think we assume that one it can be taught or people can learn leadership, uh, but it's also necessary in the federal context because of the enormous complexity of the jobs people perform. Bill, yeah, I, I would add to that, Michael, that uh, there's been a a sea change in the federal government about perceptions of leaders and leadership. Mm -hmm. um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even at the start of this uh, de you know, uh, millennium, uh, people were considered to be more managers, supervisors, you know, executives, which is fundamentally different than being a leader in the terms, in the way that we think about leadership. You know, at the corporate level, at in the military, uh, you have a distinct career professional track to be a leader, and the federal government has comes has been slow to realize that that there really is a need to cultivate leaders with defined leadership characteristics and competencies, 
And so that's why looking at the agencies and why they're trying to develop leaders separate from the development of managers and supervisors is so important. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the challenges that you identified with developing agency-based leadership uh, development programs. Bill, could you give us a highlight of some of those challenges? Well, I think the biggest challenge is cultural. Uh, Like I mentioned, the federal government is a hierarchical organization. It's huge. It's vast. 2.1 million employees. And the structures that are in place in the federal government tend toward command and control and not towards collaboration, not towards the kinds of qualities that would lead to, you know, a more agile, effective organization. And those structures are what impedes the development of leaders. We have lots of young people come into the federal government bright-eyed and they say, you know, I want to save the world, right? And then they quickly find out that they're in this organization that's very hierarchical, very command and control, and siloed, and they leave. I mean, we have a crisis in the federal government right now where there are less than 6% of the federal workers are under the age of 30. That's compared to 30% in the private sector, okay? And so what we have is an organization that is resistant to uh, leadership. So that's number one, it's the cultural thing. Number two is a lack of resources. You know, the Congress and its infinite wisdom doesn't really appropriate dollars for this uh, leadership development. And we're, you know, uh, we're struggling with that at the agency level. And then third is the lack of a model. You know, the federal government does not have a model of agency-based leadership development programs. We found lots of good examples of successful programs, but there's no sharing. There's no, no central organization that is promoting these best practices and developing the model that will help other agencies be successful. I think one of the dilemmas across an organization the size of the federal government is how much support and attention do you give the center versus the the outline uh, agencies or the agents, you know, the agencies themselves. And so, you know, that's something that we sort of, I think, understood during the course of this research and uh, and the case studies, that that's sort of an uh, sort of an ongoing area for uh, attention within the federal government. That is, how much can be centralized and perhaps operate out of OPM or other centralized development organizations and how much can be decentralized to the agencies. I think there really has to be shared responsibility. The question is, you know, how do you coordinate and sort of bring together all those resources so they're cohesive, efficient, and effective. Yeah, I think that ties into another question around challenges, Jim, uh, around data collection and evaluation. Uh, What are some of the challenges facing programs there, and how does the lack of standards and diversity of programs, which you both um, acknowledge, factor into these issues? The question of evaluation and data collection has historically been a a difficult, challenging issue for federal and public organizations more generally. I mean, it's costly to evaluate. If you're going to train people or develop people as leaders, uh, you have to allocate even more money to assess how well you're doing. 
and there's some resistance to that. Of course, another issue that's involved is if you have all these, uh, I won't say boutique programs, but sort of distinctive programs, then you have sort of no simple way method of data collection and data identification. It's going to tell you how well you're doing. And there's also probably need for some specialized talent and attention to the evaluation task itself. So all of those, I think, sort of push in the direction of limiting the level and amount of evaluation when, in fact, we want to generate data about what works and what doesn't work. Of course, developments like the uh, uh, the, the legislation on evidence-based policymaking, I think, is, is moving in the right direction, that it's basically saying – you know, not only do we need to do good leadership development, but we need to know uh, what's working and what's not working and perhaps why. And so we need to sort of spend some attention uh, on uh, the evaluation process and probably have some specialized personnel uh, dealing with that and uh, uh, responding to whether things are working. When we go to the Office of Management and Budget and ask them for more allocation of resources, they say, what is the return on investment? And that's a, that's a very challenging academic argument. And as Jim, Jim well knows, the academic community really hasn't focused on this yet. And the agencies don't have the funds to be able to answer those questions. So in one of our key recommendations is, is that the academic community and the government needs to develop you know, the kinds of evaluations, data collection, assessments that are needed to demonstrate the return on investment of these kinds of programs. What are some of the best practices in leadership development? We'll explore this question and so much more when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Jim Perry and Bill Valdez, co-authors of the IBM Center Report, preparing the next generation of federal leaders, agency-based leadership development programs. You know, Bill, from your research, um, uh, how do leadership development uh, programs in the federal space benefit both the employee and the agency? Well, the the key thing is, is that you know, we have a, a real generational problem in the federal government. We're right at the end of the baby boomer era. We have a big gap in experience and knowledge uh, that's going to be coming very soon. 
And if we don't develop our leaders, we're going to be in a very bad place in the federal government because the current generation of leaders, those folks who have managed the federal government, the career leaders, for a long time, are leaving. And there really is very little succession planning, very little coordinated leadership development, you know, throughout the federal government. And that could create a crisis of leadership in the federal government. You know, another benefit of of the leadership development is that it sort of tells the employees that the organization is committed to them. It's not committed only to its mission, but it's committed to their development. Uh, say, Jim, uh, your report um, actually identifies some best practices in leadership development. I was wondering if you could, for the audience, kind of uh, tell us a little bit more about these practices. So – you know, we we really start the report with this notion of a leadership development st- cycle, which is important, and and all of our best practices are organized around the leadership development cycle. So the leadership development cycle consists of sort of four phases, and it it may not be as linear as sort of uh, the uh, uh, my uh, explanation of it might uh, might sound. But first of all, initiating, and as Bill has already pointed out. Uh, you know, how do you get leadership development programs started, particularly within agencies? Uh, or is everybody, you know, sitting around waiting for OPM uh, to, to energize them to sort of get after the development of their uh, prospective senior exec- future senior executives and others throughout the organization? So one of the questions is what has to happen at the initiation phase? Another one is delivering. And we, we know a lot about best practices from meta-analyses and other sources uh, that have looked at private programs. For instance, with respect to delivering, one of the things we know, and we've known for a long time, but we, I think, confirmed with the case studies and our sort of analysis of the literature, is that you can't send somebody off for a weekend and say, we're sending you to the leadership development program, come back a leader. That just doesn't happen. So most of these successful programs really look to developing leaders over time. The, you know, that's sort of the, the baseline uh, length of the program uh, is six months. And people are sort of immersed in that program for at least six months, if not longer. And so that really sort of establishes a person's familiarity with uh, the cognitive, the behavioral, the, the skill-based sort of components of, of leadership. The third sort of element of that leadership development cycle is evaluation or measuring effectiveness, which we've already touched on. But clearly, agencies are interested in knowing whether the programs are working. And people in the organization are going to participate in them and sort of embrace them if they know they're working. So the organization has to ask that question. But it's also a fundamental question for the larger federal enterprise. That is, are these programs giving us the types of people that are going to sort of contribute in meaningful ways to our mission and the values we embrace? And then finally, there's the question of how to sustain these programs. And Bill has already touched on one of the issues. You might be able to get some monies to start up a program and to initiate it. The question is, you know, what will it take to sustain it? And certainly, uh, you want individual buy-in, you want leadership buy-in, you want a number of factors to fall into place to assure that the programs that work stay in place and are maybe elaborated within sort of the or, the structure of, or the programmatic contributions of leadership programs 
across the organization. Great. I wanted to get into the uh, case studies. Bill, the first one is the United States Air Force Civilian Force Development Program. Could you tell us more about it? How does it work? How does it operate? And more importantly, what are some of the key characteristics that set it apart? Well, it really is an outstanding program uh, and somewhat unique because it's been around for over 20 years. And it was put together as a full life cycle program uh, from the very beginning by some very, very smart people who are still, you know, involved with the program itself. The characteristic of it is, is that centrally managed by uh, the Air Force Civilian Headquarters Command, and it has a dedicated budget, quite substantial dedicated budget, and it finds the thing that really distinguishes it is that they have developed leadership pathways depending on how you, what type of career you, you choose within the Air Force as a civilian. So you can be a technician, you can be, you know, an acquisition specialist, you can be somebody who works at the Pentagon in administrative functions, but they've carefully analyzed how you can become a leader and achieve the Air Force mission starting from the moment that you become a Air Force civilian. By that, I mean that when you raise your hand and you say, you know, I want to become an Air Force civilian employee, uh, they begin actually at that stage analyzing, you know, what your leadership characteristics are and how you can, you know, fit in within your career track. It's really a full life cycle kind of program and in many ways could serve as a model for other agencies. So, Jim, the next uh, case study is the Naval Surface Warfare Center Crane Division uh, Leadership Program. Could you tell us more about this program? How does it operate? And what are some of the key characteristics of the program? Yes. Now, NSWC Crane, NSWC is just the acronym for Naval Surface Warfare Center, is one of 10 warfare centers within the Naval Sea Systems Command, which is uh, typically referred to by its acronym NAVC. Now, it's a little bit different than the other sort of elements of our case studies because it is not sort of this uh, huge – we're not talking about the whole of the Navy. We're talking about uh, the, the only defense installation that uh, – is located in the state of Indiana, uh, NAFC uh, or the uh, NSWC crane. It's focused on a fairly simple leadership development program. Its, it's core program is something called the Leadership Challenge, which is based on uh, both uh, research in a book by James Cousis and uh, Barry Posner. Now, what's interesting about that is that uh, the people at Crane took this leadership development program off the shelf and so are basically using something that's accessible to anyone uh, who can get access to a library or to a bookstore. And they they took the uh, Kuzis and Posner uh, book. In the Kuzis and Posner book, they f sort of focus on five leadership practices. One is model the way. The second is uh, inspire a vision. The third is challenge the process. The fourth is enable others to act. Uh, and the fifth is encourage the heart. Now, this particular leadership program has been used with hundreds of thousands of, uh, of people around the world. So it's sort of a global leadership development program, one that uh, any federal agency or federal unit could sort of uh, pull off the shelf and, and, and use. Now, the Crane people have been very uh, attentive 
to trying to sort of stay to the heart of the program and working the program as it was developed. And of course, one facet of the program is not only this sort of five or six month process in the leadership development program, but individuals are exposed to a variety of uh, modalities of their development, coaching, mentoring, practice-based learning. So, you know, during the course of the program, what's what's very interesting and useful, but sort of is, I think, the clue to its effectiveness is that individuals are slowly exposed to the content of the program and then get a chance to work with it over an extended period of time, much different than sort of sending somebody to classroom training. But I think it's indicative of the whole range of of developmental opportunities, leadership development opportunities we were exposed to in our case studies. And one thing I like about the report, Bill, is that it's sort of a small sample, but it's a diverse sample. And the next one I wanted to talk about is the uh, leadership development program at the Department of Homeland Security. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned there? Yeah, that, that's a fascinating case study because, as you know, the Department of Homeland Security was created in 2002, I suppose. And can, and they brought together 22 different agencies, uh, and they total about 250,000 employees scattered across the United States. So the challenges of managing and developing a leadership development program at an agency like that out of whole cloth and then coordinating it is extreme. And so DHS struggled in its early years uh, to develop a coherent leadership development program, in part because when you had agencies like, you know, the Social, I mean, uh, the Secret Service or the U.S. Marshal Service or the, you know, Coast Guard, they already came in with their leadership development programs, right? And so trying to figure out what, how you do a coherent program at the agency level was a challenge. Well, I think they've succeeded. Uh, they really put a lot of attention to it and came up with a DHS model of how to both have a coordinated agency-based leadership development program that worked in cooperation with its sub-elements. Mm-hmm. And they are still working on it. And uh, they are now developing some rising leader programs that we weren't aware of when we did this report, but that's an extension of what they've learned. In many ways, uh, it serves as a model for how other agencies can balance the need between a big, you know, an agency-wide program that meets the needs of its subcomponents. Every federal agency is, you know, the, the cabinet agencies, you know, the Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, Health and Human Services, all have many different subcomponents. And each one of them, you know, has its own individual needs. So the DHS example shows us that you can have a very complex organization with a overlay of uh, corporate leadership development programs that work in cooperation with the sub-agency programs. That's a good point. Um, hey, Jim, there's the fourth uh, case study that you identify is for, for the Department of Agriculture and their leader development program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? One of the elements that's, I think, very important in USDA, and, and we probably have understated it in some of these other units, but is the chief learning officer. So many of the departments have chief learning officers, and these are folks who are providing leadership at the central level again, 
uh, who are trying to deal with both the the center and the periphery, the bureaus and the units, as well as the as as well as the headquarter needs and the need for uh, commonality across the organization. Uh, so they they rely on that uh, on the uh, chief learning officer to provide leadership. But one of the other things that's developed within USDA is there's really sort of a leadership development program from beginning to end, uh, which is I think a commonality with what. Uh, Bill was referring to with the sort of the learning that went on with an DHS and their sort of new leadership de- development programs that keep sprouting up in part uh, to address the learning that occurs over time. What USDA does is or has is sort of a su- strategic organization that covers people at every level of the organization and sort of identifies the modalities for developing those individuals over time. So again, I think it's indicative of both uh, how um, complex agencies like DHS and USDA and, and Air Force and HHS and others deal with sort of the, the challenge of uh, developing leaders for their missions over time. But uh, also how those programs change, uh, change because of organizational learning, change in part because of the uh, demands from employees to say, hey, let's sort of broaden this beyond simply this, the executive levels to other levels of the organization because uh, we need leadership across the organization, but we also need to have people who are developed in ways that will permit them to rise to the executive level if they have the opportunity. What lessons can be learned for how best to deliver effective leadership development programs? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Jim Perry and Bill Valdez, co-authors of the IBM Center Report, preparing the next generation of federal leaders, agency-based leadership development programs. You know, given the research and the programs outlined in your report for the IBM Center, uh, Jim Perry, what lessons can be learned for how best to initiate a leadership development program? Tying the leadership development to the mission and values is absolutely critical. It's also important uh, to identify an urgent need. For instance, with respect to Crane, at the time they were embarking on leadership development, two things were weighing on them. One is that base realignment and closure, the BRAC process, was a reality. 
and uh, there's not sort of a decentralized defense installation probably in the country that wasn't, think- wasn't thinking BRAC. Uh, the question is, you know, how does uh, leadership development sort of uh, affect their ability to, to respond uh, to the BRAC challenge? There's also the, the you know, w- one of the common issues, and I've been associated with Crane for many years. This is an engineering organization. It's a national lab. They have maybe 1,500 engineers. Engineers are not managers. Engineers are often don't think about themselves as leading organizations. But, but Crane was also, at the same time, was concerned about BRAC and the urgent need, was also concerned with saying, okay, we're, we're a $500 million a year operation, and we, we have lots of money going through our system. Uh, how do we become really excellent? How do we come, become better? Uh, and this is an organization that was in existence a long time, but they wanted to move their capacity to a new level. And that's important, was important to initiating the program because the commanding officer who, uh, or the office, commanding officer at the time in 2005 came in and said, you know, we really want to move this uh, to a new level. Uh, and we want to, we, we need to sort of develop our leadership capacity. And then, of course, the other issue that we've identi- that we identified as important across these organizations was the need for a powerful champion. You know, that was particularly important in the Department of Homeland Security, Department of, or in, in the Air Force, uh, USDA. They they all had champions, uh, and that was sort of critical to getting the program started. They just don't start by themselves. Somebody has to take the initiative uh, and sort of articulate the need. Uh, and move things forward w- with some risk. Yeah, and I would, I would add to that that the, the political leadership uh, of the agencies has to buy into this. And one of the things that most people don't understand about the federal government is that there are 2.1 million career employees and about 4,000 political employees uh, who come in with each administration, ranging from you know the president himself to assistant secretaries and then lower-level political appointees. And so if you don't get the buy-in of the political leadership of your agency, you can't really uh, initiate these kinds of programs or sustain them. Well, but, uh, you know, we talked about in, in the initiation the need for political and, you know, just a champion to get the buy-in to move it forward. But, you know, Bill, what are some of the lessons you learned in your research about how best to deliver the program? Yeah. So what we found was the programs that, you know, are very successful are led by people who are skilled in this field. You would think that would be obvious, right? (laughs) But it's not necessarily obvious because in my experience in the federal government, sometimes these kinds of programs are put into the hands of people as duties as otherwise assigned. They don't have the academic background to do it. But, for example, at the Air Force program, they have an industrial organizational psychologist on staff who helps develop curriculum, helps develop the program design and all the rest. And that's been inherent in the program from the very beginning. They have a bureaucrat, you know, a senior career person who is not necessarily a training expert overseeing the program, but they have people on staff who are very well versed in how to develop and sustain these kinds of programs. So that's really, you know, a key. You put people in who understand how to deliver these kinds of programs. Mm -hmm. 
And then I think the other thing that really, you know, is very, very helpful is having the resource base that enables you to keep the program going even when there aren't funds available. And think about that. So at the Air Force program, they maintain a database of 1,000 different kinds of resources that are available to Air Force civilian employees free of charge. So if you are developing yourself as a GS-12 or GS-13 and you have a particular need to have a certain type of training, it's likely to be in that online catalog as a resource that you can access by itself. So, you know, uh, we've talked a little bit about um, the idea that there are no real ways to demonstrate ROI or return on investment. But, Jim, I was wondering, what are some of the other lessons learned from your research around the best way to measure program effectiveness? Well, um, one of the things we uh, came back to frequently was the what's called the Kirkpatrick four-level model, which really sort of – it's sort of a logic model that says, you know, you, you assess development and training based on people's experience. You, then you look at the change of behaviors. Then you look at the change in their uh, effectiveness, uh, both at the individual and organizational level. So, you know, we kept coming back to that as sort of an, a, a relevant, useful model. And, and even though the Kirkpatrick model goes back over 40 years – it, it was first, I think, floated uh, uh, a number, several years before the Civil Service Reform Act of 78. I think it goes back to the mid-70s or maybe earlier. You know, that that model still has a lot of currency today and a lot of utility. And uh, the chief learning officers and the, that, that community across the federal government, I think, looks to it. Now, the other thing we came to realize by the end of the process was that the return on investment is sort of a fifth level. That is, that it sort of uh, uh, tries to connect costs and benefits or benefits and costs. Uh, and that's certainly one way to think about the return on investment in terms of benefits and costs. But, you know, one of the things that impressed me, though, uh, both in the, in the context of, of, of my sort of crane uh, connections as well as uh, in our conversations with other opinion leaders and others, was that even in the absence of robust and rigorous uh, models for evaluating the effectiveness of these programs, people knew whether they were working. And they also were able to identify markers or benchmarks for whether they were working. For instance, if you talk to a manager, they would say, well, uh, you know, I, I lead this team and I recognize uh, within uh, three months that people were changing their behaviors. They were thinking differently about the organization. So that was sort of encouraging. Uh, and uh, I was uh, impressed with the fact that Regardless of where people were in the organization, they could un- identify what difference the leadership development program made. And now that wasn't sort of a collective sense of its effectiveness, but it was a, a meaningful sense of the effectiveness and it affected, uh, influenced something that was very important for sustaining the program. And that was the buy-in to the program. If people experienced the program, even if indirectly and they recognized what difference it was making, that was important for them to say, we need to keep pushing on this. This is this is important to us and important to the organization. So the return on investment question plagues even corporations, right? They 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 have a difficult time saying, you know, this is the value of our uh, of our leadership development programs. Um, so 
one of the things that we considered was um, can you tie uh, research can you tie leadership development programs to employee engagement? Uh, as you know, the federal government does an annual employee engagement survey called the you know the best places to work survey. And there is some statistical evidence that shows that those agencies that have perceived better leadership, you know, leaders, leaders have higher employee engagement and higher employee satisfaction, making them better places to work. And that just makes common sense, right? But ultimately, what you'd really like to be able to do is to show that, you know, if you have more effective leaders you deliver more mission value to the American taxpayer. And that that would be the holy grail to me of measuring, you know, the return on investment. We're not anywhere close to being able to do that, but we have some anecdotal evidence that that, that actually is the case. You know, Bill, you have mentioned the buy-in aspect uh, as critical to sustainability of a program. Are there any other elements that need to be in place in order to sustain these programs besides buy-in? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You have to have resources. You have to have uh, the kinds of communications and programmatic structures in place to be able to sustain them. Uh, Just as an example of that, when I was at the Department of Energy, they tried to set up what they called a DOE university. Uh, that would be uh, self-sustaining, would be led by DOE employees who were trained to deliver different leadership component training. And so that was a year or two effort that then just went away with change of political leadership, right? So they, they created this structure and then it went away. So you have to have sustainability of the structure itself. And then, you know, you really do need a model. You need a theory of, of what you're doing. And again, it has to be tied to the mission of the organization. And so one of the core principles of the Air Force program is what, you know, what does it take to, pre- to prepare an Air Force warfighter, whether you are a civilian or whether you're a commissioned officer or whether you're a non-commissioned officer? What are the leadership aspects that prepare you to become that warfighter? So they're sharply focused on their mission. At DHS, they're sharply focused on what can we do to develop a public service ethic for our, you know, our leaders so that they will deliver regardless of whether you're patrolling the border or whether you're off the Coast Guard or whether you're, you know, with TSA, you're always focused on the delivery of value to the American taxpayer and the public service ethos. You know, Jim, I want to talk about some of the modalities, the training and development modalities uh, that you folks found out about in your research for the IBM Center report. What were some of the characteristics of success and what's going on in this area? Well, uh, Bill mentioned a point, and this is sort of an elaboration of one of Bill's points, and that was to to try to deliver these programs efficiently. I think one of the things we found across the case studies was that the delivery moved from the hands of the sort of the, the people sort of running the program, often to the partnership with the people who have been through the program. So, for instance, a manager 
who is, was through an effective leadership development program, said, I want to give back, so I want to become a mentor to somebody who's entering this program, and I also want to help coach somebody. So that turns out to be also a very efficient way of delivering the program because everybody in the organization takes responsibility for, for delivering it. So, you know, that's not a formal modality or formal method of delivery, but I think it was sort of indicative of the case studies where larger groups of people became engaged as part of their day-to-day activities. And uh, so they embraced it as part of their role as someone in the organization who is trying to move the organization forward and also as a leader, whether that was sort of an official label put on given them or a formal label or whether it was an informal label. So, you know, this notion of collective responsibility for leadership development, I think, is an important component, an important part of leadership development in the most successful organizations. The other one that I, I think is very important and that came across to me repeatedly is a combination of coaching and mentoring. And one of the things that I'm attentive to, having been an, uh, you know, a faculty member in public administration for 40 years, was that we've never given a lot of attention to this notion of coaching, although it's something that we, even as faculty members, may do with our best students to try to help them understand certain skills. And it's not purely cognitive, but it's sort of trying to sort of equate or familiarize them with the sort of the norms and the professional practice in a particular area. But so one of the important modalities I think that was consistent across our cases was this notion of coaching and mentoring. And, and uh, you know, you can separate the idea of mentoring from the notion of coaching, but they often come together and I think they sort of uh, are sort of commonly uh, connected because someone who's a good coach is probably also an effective mentor. But I think that's an important modality that, uh, again, is, I think, distinctive to the most successful organizations. And it's sort of, uh, Bill mentioned this notion of ethos. It's part of the ethos of leadership development across the effective organizations, the effective organizations that that we studied as probably as well as, as others and certainly something that transcends not, not only the public organizations but also private too. So, you know, this notion of collective responsibility, collective activity to make leadership development work and to advance the leadership capacity of an organization, as well as the coaching and mentoring that takes place. They're, they're part and parcel of the uh, most effective modalities of uh, delivering these uh, leadership development programs. Bill, from the lessons you've learned, can you tell us, are they transferable to other agencies? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we discovered, you know, during this uh, journey was that there are a tremendous number of entities outside of government and inside of government that provide training and uh, uh, resources, you know, for curriculum, for content, coaching and all the rest. Um, But what was lacking was an understanding of which of the practices that are within these agency-based organizations are transferable. And so the things that that we learned that are transferable are, you know, have a, you know, centrally managed, well-thought-out plan, develop, you know, the curriculum and the content, the modalities that are 
important to your entity, you know, your agency, and do it in a consistent manner. You know, the federal government, you know, like we said, is is extremely big and extremely complex. But there are certainly transferable elements from each of these programs that other agencies could, could adopt. What does the future hold for leadership development programs in the U.S. federal government? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Jim Perry and Bill Valdez, co-authors of the IBM Center Report, preparing the next generation of federal leaders, agency-based leadership development programs. So, Jim, your report uh, for the Center identifies three primary conclusions. Could you elaborate on each of these conclusions? I can, but they're, they're also fairly simple. Uh, and and uh, for the most part, encouraging. You know, the first is that we did four ex- detailed, extensive case studies, and what we found was in these four case studies, not that there wasn't sort of an element of selection involved here, but these agencies were able to successfully mount leadership development programs. It wasn't that you know they were sort of getting pushed from the center of the federal government. It was that we sort of came, looked at these programs, and they, they're, they're great programs, and they work well. So just the fact that agencies like uh, Crane, which is, again, sort of in southern Indiana, which is to some extent isolated, although part of this larger network of surface warfare facilities, was able to sort of mount a program successfully at its own initiative with the support of its uh, chief civilian and, uh, and the military commander, I think is sort of a great story. That is, we can say, we talk a lot about what may not work in the federal government, but here's, a, here's some stories about agencies and, uh, that, whose leadership development programs worked. And uh, they overcame odds and they were successful. And so that's encouraging. The other element that's encouraging here is that we didn't have to discover rocket science. That is, we looked, for instance, at generic best practices, and the reality is that the case studies that we did, most of what made a difference in those case studies was also indicative of what we know from the larger leadership literature. You know, what, what, how to initiate the program, how to deliver it, how to evaluate it, and how to sustain it. 
those are sort of uh, – there's sort of a common a wisdom there or lessons learned that sort of work and worked in the, the agencies we looked at. So all that's encouraging because you could point, for instance, other agencies – uh, not only to our cases, but to this g- generic literature to say, hey, listen, if you want to sort of initiate, deliver, evaluate, and sustain a program, here are some core ideas for you to, that you need to pursue. Now, sort of the, the third conclusion we came to is that there are some dis- distinctive challenges that face federal agencies. You know, one is, and that Bill has already touched on, underwriting and sustaining the programs, simply because of the discontinuity associated with our political institutions uh, and the fact that we don't earmark lots of monies for training and development, it can be hard to sort of develop the resources to underwrite and sustain the program. So that's clearly a challenge. But again, it's a challenge that the Air Force, the Navy, USDA, Department of Homeland Security all overcame in the context of the case studies we looked at. And then the other element is uh, managing us unstable coalitions of supporters over time. And again, that's uh, both people moving through the or- or organizations at the political level and at the civilian level, those changes as well as sort of changing stakeholders of the agencies make a difference. And so that has to be managed. But I think that's also part and maybe testifies to the leadership that we found in the organizations that were successful in sust- uh, developing, initiating, sustaining these programs. Thanks, Jim. So, Bill, your report that uh, you put together with your co-authors um, identified or posit four recommendations. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, the recommendations largely centered on first, you know, we need a whole-of-government effort on this, and we specifically call out uh, the Office of Personnel Management as you know the entity that should be taking care of this particular issue. They have an office in OPM called the Center for Leadership Development, and we think they have the core resources, knowledge, responsibility to be able to develop the programs, you know, whole of government. And within Washington right now, there's a whole big debate, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Michael, of, you know, what is the role of OPM? You know, should it be merged with GSA? All those different things. But as part of that conversation, uh, we are, and we being the Senior Executives Association, are pushing OPM and pushing, you know, the dialogue to say, OPM should have more responsibility as a central organization that sets policy guidance and provides advice to not just for leadership development programs, but for hiring authorities and things like that. And the relationship between the agencies and OPM uh, has to be strengthened and further refined. And so I think that debate is happening and OPM, I think, you know, plays a critical role in this. Uh, the other recommendation centered around, you know, for example, the academic community and agencies need to be, you know, really doing a lot more thinking about what it takes to make an effective program, you know, increase research, increase, you know, look, look at particularly the return on investment issue, 
and think the you know the core recommendations you know really do just focus on you know how do we embed you know these best practices in the agencies and then how do we ensure you know that they become sustainable so uh, bill picking up on that you know what does the future hold for uh, federal agency leadership development efforts and what else can be done to make this even more of a government wide priority I think we have to get the attention of Congress okay. and the, you know, we actually have an opportunity in the coming year uh, because this is a presidential election year and it's also uh, in 2021, we're going to have a new Congress. And in my conversations, both with uh, the existing administration and in hearing what the you know, candidates are saying on the Democratic side and then conversations up on the Hill, there's actually an appetite for this. People recognize that the federal government is in a state of transition. It's in a state of crisis, and as a matter of fact. And longtime critics of the federal government, for example, the Koch brothers, now are coming around to the idea that, hey, the federal government actually serves a major purpose in the lives of Americans, right? And when we had the government shut down in uh, 2019, it became real for people. And the coronavirus is making it real for people. Mm -hmm. And they recognize that unless you have effective civil servants, effective leadership at the career level in the federal government, we could be in a world of hurt. And so I think the dialogue is happening, and we have a potential to really make a difference in this particular area. Hey, Jim, do you have anything else to add to that? Well, as sort of a representative of the academic community, I would say that we in the academic community, by our research, I think can uh, contribute more effectively to the knowledge base we have. You know, one of the issues that is implied by Bill's comments is that we probably need to be looking more carefully about the relationship between leadership uh, and leadership development and federal agency performance. And that I think that would help make this larger case in terms of the logic of return on investment or sort of the outcomes uh, and sort of the the effectiveness consequences of leadership development. But uh, we need to sort of take a bigger piece of that action uh, in the academic community and uh, produce a better knowledge base that will sort of contribute to uh, making the sales job or, or convincing Congress that they ought to be acting on some of these things uh, easier for uh, our a practitioner and professional colleagues. Well, that's great. Uh, Jim, uh, Bill, I want to thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, with Jim Perry and Bill Valdez, co-authors with Gordon Abner and Jenny Knowles-Morrison of the IBM Center Report, preparing the next generation of federal leaders, agency-based leadership development programs, Download this and all Center reports and all Center content at businessofgovernment.org. And be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.